You've just heard three generations of women sing to you this song, Come to the Water, inviting each of us to meet God where we are. And now we turn again to God's water promises in today's story from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from his journey, and so he sat down at the well. It was about, nine, it was about noon. A Samaritan woman had come to the well to draw water. She said, Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink for his disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with one another. Jesus responded, If you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, Give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would be giving you living water. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become, in those who drink it, a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. And the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water again. And she said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach us everything. And Jesus said to her, I am. I am the one who speaks with you. And just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her jar of water and she went into the city. And she said to the people, come and see. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we talk about water. And we move from baptismal font to the communion table. We move from water to food, from thirst to hunger. But we begin at that most elemental, most necessary, most essential, water. Without it, even our food dries up. Crops die and fires spread and reservoirs and streams and wells dry up. We might think that this is some ancient phenomenon, something that reminds us just of the Dust Bowl of the 30s or the West African drought in the 70s or Ethiopia's drought in the 80s. But California's unprecedented drought today, spurred on by greenhouse gases, 
demands that we change the way we live. Too much water does the same thing in reverse. Thunderstorms, tornadoes, cyclones, monsoons, melting snow. These things trigger powerful floods that uproot crops and contaminate reservoirs and streams and wells with unsafe water. How are we to live? Water is essential. It is both truly, actually, literally life-giving and metaphorically rich. But we can sometimes pass it by. But without, without water, there is no life on earth, and with it, possibly, maybe you've heard, there might be life on Mars. Can you believe it? Water on Mars? After witnessing last week that blood-red moon that eclipsed on Sunday evening across our cloudy Chicago skies, it's both shocking and not shocking to hear Monday that Mars now shows definitive signs of water albeit briny, as NASA says. It's shocking because for so long, water or life on Mars has been a thing of science fiction. And not so, sh not so shocking because of that eclipse. Did you see it? A tangible reminder of how wild and vivid our universe is. Water flows, they say, on the surface of our neighbor, the red planet. And the timing of this watery report couldn't be better for our friend Ridley Scott because of this new film, The Martian, that was released this week. Now, I haven't seen it yet, and maybe you have, so don't worry, I won't give away any spoilers. But if I understand correctly, NASA collaborated closely on this film, which makes it the most scientifically accurate space travel film ever made. Well done, Mars. Well done. I'm s I suspect that it'll take months and years and even decades for us to work out exactly what it means for us to have water on Mars. Maybe this week's news will prompt a new generation of scientists, leading to increased scientific curiosity and maybe even helping your clergy with scientific literacy and all of us with ability to know about the world through science. Maybe it'll prompt brave new pathfinders, people who are willing to take on new levels of exploration in this, the final frontier. And maybe it'll prompt new thinking about who we are as humans, just as Galileo and Newton and Einstein and Darwin did. This newfound water on Mars, it'll probably also impact us as God's people. It'll push us to expand our image of God. It'll challenge us to look deeper into the mystery beyond mystery of the divine. Last Sunday, in the evening, I drove down to Hyde Park, seeking out fewer clouds and a better view. And standing there on the shoreline of Lake Michigan, Gazing up at the eclipsing moon, I was surrounded by hundreds of other people who had also sought that space, looking up and looking out and looking beyond. Maybe you went to the shore too, to the water's edge, to watch that moon. Maybe you looked from your house. There was an energy about that communal act, watching together, mostly wordlessly, but certainly not silent but a little sacred. It was the kind of event that simultaneously made me wonder about the future as well as become deeply curious about the past. 
I didn't even know that Mars was going to be this place of water the next morning, but standing on the shore that Sunday night, wondering about the world and where we stand in it, I wondered how our understanding of God might change in the coming years as we think about our place in the universe. But at the same time, I was also wondering about how ancient people here on Earth might have viewed this same event. They would have had no Twitter. They would have had no Twitter hashtags to follow, nobody quickly explaining the moon's tint or disappearance, no experience of transatlantic flight or video footage of moon landings to color their encounter of the sky. Our ancient faith family wandering the desert with Moses would have certainly experienced something different that night. The ancient rhythms to them felt different without streetlights. The ancient songs sounded different without car stereos. And yet there's something, despite the difference between us and them, between us and Moses and his people, there are still days when Moses is just another desert wanderer among thousands. And in a year when our planet has millions of Syrian refugees, wandering. It's not difficult to connect the dots between their journey and the journey of Moses, a people escaping deadly oppression and wandering in search of a homeland, seeking basic unchanging necessities of food and water and rest. And so we begin with water because it's so elemental and it's so central to us. And as W.H. Auden wrote, putting first things first, Thousands have lived without love, not one without water. Thousands have lived without love, not one without water. Yet somehow, I would say, it is through water that God shows love. It is at the water's edge that God's love is made known, and it is through such tangible and life-sustaining realities that God claims us as beloved. In fact, I would claim that we are people of liquid faith. Our faith story entangles us with water and the sacred from the very beginning, from page one. We imagine the divine spirit hovering over the watery chaos as God speaks order into creation. Our first spiritual home, Eden, sits at the meeting place of four rivers that flow from north and south and east and west. Primordial Noah, you remember his story well. He is the first one to watch the watery chaos return again, a flood sweeping all the earth that he's ever known away, except for an ark full of family and creatures two by two. And our faith story continues with water because later it is a drought and a famine that brings our ancestors to Egypt in search of food. And so in Egypt, where our story begins today, after all the pharaohs had forgotten his ancestors, we meet baby Moses floating down the river in a basket while his family watches on expectantly in hopes of someone scooping him up into safety. And as an adult, Moses meets God, not at the riverside, but in the dry, dry desert. And a holy voice from a burning bush shouts out to him, 
Take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. I am the God of your ancestors. I am your God. I am who I am. Go and lead your people out of Egypt. And so, imbued with this divinely extraordinary power, Moses does just that. He stands with Charlton Heston wide arms as God parts the Red Sea and the people cross safely out of slavery and into the desert. We know this story of liquid faith. The people set out into the desert where God provides manna, bread from heaven, and turns the bitter water into sweet water. So we should not be surprised when Moses today seeks water for his equally grumpy and thirsty people, when Moses, with God's guidance, can bring water from an impossible place, from a rock. We are people of liquid faith. And the story continues as Moses' water-bearing God is made known in Jesus Christ. Our watery faith story picks up in the Gospel of John where we first meet Jesus, our light in the darkness, not in the manger, the story that we tell at Christmas time, but instead at the river. In the Gospel of John, when we first meet Jesus, there are no magi or shepherds or angels, just John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, standing at the water's edge at the Jordan River, baptizing. In Jesus' baptism, John is equally surprised that the Holy Spirit hovers there like a dove from heaven. And just as quickly as that dove descends, Jesus goes out and continues this watery story. He gathers up disciples from every corner of his area and calls um, everyone to go north to Galilee to a wedding where, at his mother's request, Jesus performs his first miracle turning water into wine. We are indeed people of liquid faith. Back in Jerusalem for the Passover meal, Jesus meets a wealthy religious leader, Nicodemus, and tells him that it is through water and the Spirit that we can see and know and enter the kingdom of God. And not long after that, but still before Jesus walks on water, he travels with his disciples through Samaria where he meets this woman at the well. And when he's there, Jesus is breaching all social convention, which we shouldn't be surprised about because this is what we learn from Jesus, that he breaks down the barriers that divide us. He breaks down social convention. And not only that, he's breaching social convention by talking to this Samaritan woman, but he's also doing that by traveling the road through Samaria itself. Yes, as the gospel notes, it's the most direct route, but it would have been controversial for Jesus to travel that way, let alone seek water at their well. It would be like a Sox fan turning up at Wrigley in Cubs territory looking for a beer. Jesus was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and yet it is just that that makes the story so compelling. Jesus takes the most direct route and does so boldly, while Moses, Jesus' human counterpart in our story, alternatively wanders. There's no good historical reason why it would have taken Moses and his people 40 years to cross the desert. 
even at its widest point, the desert that separates the flesh pots from e- in Egypt and the promised land flowing with milk and honey. It's only 200 miles across, a four-hour car ride, or a 20-day hike at most, double if you consider all the children and great-grandmothers that Moses might have been traveling with. Moses' desert wanders are wondering, why are we here? And Jesus' new friend, the Samaritan woman, is wondering, why are you talking to me? Their journeys are equally unusual, and yet there is something comforting in that. It makes our unusual journeys no less odd, but it makes us fellow sojourners with Christ, wanderers with God's people. Our journey to Mars our journey to the cloudless Hyde Park, our journey to Inglewood or Evanston or England or Italy, or even a boundary-crossing track to Lambeau Field. There we are offered living water. There God arrives, announcing good, announcing abundance, announcing life. Today is World Communion Sunday. It is a day when we are invited to taste and see that God is good. All across the globe, Christians are together proclaiming God's love that stretches across the skies and God's love that is written on our hearts. Long ago, those rivers in Eden flowed from north and south and east and west, but somewhere along the line, the watery chaos divided us and we were flung to the far corners of the earth. But at our common table, we gather again. And as Christ says, they will come from north and south and east and west and sit at table in the kingdom of God. When, Jesus, when the Samaritan woman speaks to Jesus at the well, she tells him, this well is deep and you have brought no bucket. And today our feast is set. Today's meal is abundant. It is full. It is a great feast. And yet none of us have brought a plate Yet it is here at this feast that we are called to taste and see that God is good, to bear witness to our watery faith, knowing that God goes with us to the water's edge and beyond as we wander and as we wonder about God's mystery beyond mystery. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.